And this is the Love the Cove podcast, where we'll be diving into covenant history and exploring what makes the Evangelical Covenant Church covenant as we move toward our future together as mission friends. It's Kathy. In this episode, Jane and I have such a rich conversation with Covenant historian Hannah Andre and Dominique Gilliard. We're talking about the end of the 1960s, the Black Manifesto, the Covenant's unique response to this call to white churches and synagogues, and where we witness similar themes in our culture today. And let me take a moment to give a special shout out to Hannah, who has generously served as our number one consultant in covenant history as Jane and I have worked on this podcast. Hannah has shared resources and expertise and her input has been integral to Love the Cove. Thank you, Hannah. Dominique, thank you so much for joining us. We're so excited to have this conversation with you both today. Um, Could you each take just a minute and introduce yourself to our listeners? Thanks so much for this invitation. Um, My name is Hannah Andre, and I'm Associate Professor of Church History at North Park Theological Seminary. Hey, uh, Dominique Gilliard, excited to be with you all today. Uh, I serve as the Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Love, Mercy, Do Justice mission priority of the Evangelical Covenant Church. So today we're talking about the Black Manifesto. And Hannah, can you give us a quick overview of the Black Manifesto for listeners who might not know what it is? Yes. Um, So at the most basic level, the Black Manifesto was a document issued in April, late April 1969. Um, It came out of a National Black Economic Development Conference, and it was addressed to white churches and synagogues in the United States. Um, It came with the charge of complicity in 400 years of economic exploitation of African Americans and demanded in response to that, $500 million in reparations. And just to give some context, um, adjusted for inflation today, that $500 million is uh, $4 billion. Dom, could you help us zoom out and understand what is so critical about this point in history? Yeah, so this manifesto is a a call for the affirmation of Black life in many ways. Um, It is uh, shining a light on the dehumanizing forces that have been at play in U.S. history that have declared that uh, Black life was expendable, Black life was only valuable when fiscally exploitable. Um, And so it is this, this clarion call for us to really reckon with this anti-Black history. Um, And so we see uh, it kind of being rooted in the reality of chattel slavery that exists from 1619 up to 1863. Then it goes into this nebulous period of uh, where we see verdicts like the Dred Scott case uh, passed down. Then you go into a history of convict leasing from 1865 to 1921 and really extends into 1941, where essentially you have what's known as slavery by another name. Uh, and then you go into an area era of lynching, uh, domestic terrorism that really ranged from 1877 to 1952. 
you have Plessy versus Ferguson uh, in the same era. Jim Crow is the broader term that most people are aware of. You have these realities, these horrid realities of Red Summer of the 1919, where you have these anti-Black riots uh, going all across the country in 25 major cities across the country. And so you have this very palatable uh, attack on Black life in this country. And this manifesto coming on the heels of what's formerly known as the end of the civil rights movement. And you have Black folks saying, okay, we've tried to uh, do nonviolent civil disobedience and you assassinated our leader. Uh, You assassinated the person that we tied our hopes and dreams to, to believe that this kind of change, this is how change should actually be manifested. And the Black community is reeling and it's wondering, does anybody really understand the breadth and the depth of the brokenness? And this manifesto really emerges kind of in that space. So for understanding the Black manifesto, it's really essential to understand the significance of 1969 um, as it functions as a pivot year from the civil rights movement proper into the rise of um, the Black Power movement. As a broader context as well, to locate it within um, the Cold War, which becomes really critical for interpreting, well, for understanding the reception of the document. So the document itself was brought to the National Black Economic Development Conference um, by James Foreman, who at that time was the Director of International Affairs for SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and he was an invited guest at the conference. The conference itself was sponsored by IFCO, the Interreligious Foundation for Community Organization. So the purpose of the conference was about economic development. And in presenting um, as an invited presenter, Foreman brought the manifesto that he himself had written. So the The content of the document proper um, made the economic demands, as I said, directed to white churches and white synagogues as the glue, the moral glue of capitalism in the United States. And it, it specified how that money, the funds raised, would be used. So I think it's helpful to get a sense of what what was called the United Black Appeal Fund would actually go towards supporting. Um, So for example, publishing houses, TV networks, skills centers, um, training centers for community organization skills, um, the establishment of a national black labor strike and defense fund, a university and so on. So in a sense, it's saying like, you know, we're not asking anymore. We're not asking for, for help or cooperation. Like, this is this is a demand, and this is um, you know what what is required for um, self sufficiency. However, it's it's framed within um, an introduction that Foreman read in presenting it, um, and this is this is um, it's important to recognize this to see why there was some knee jerk reactions. Um, so, in the introduction, when the document as a whole rejects capitalism outright. And again, remember that this is during the Cold War. 
And he says, instead, the path to economic empowerment, um, you know, isn't the, the path being pursued by this larger conf- conference, but instead, he says, total Black control of the U.S. government and the means of production. Right, so the inter- in the introduction, James Foreman called on Black Americans to help bring the U.S. government down by whatever means necessary, including, um, and this is a quote, the use of force and the power of a gun. And also another quote, calling for armed confrontation and long years of sustained guerrilla warfare in order to achieve Black domination in the U.S. So what Dominique describes is, describes is this longer history is essential for contextualizing this call and also putting this um, within a Cold War context um, first helps us understand why immediately after this event, um, Foreman and the organization is put on, under surveillance by the FBI, right? There's concern like this is actually um, calling to take down the, the U.S. government. And also why most Christian denominations um, and Jewish denominations rejected the Black Manifesto outright. So I had said the the demand was for $500 million. One year later, after issuing this document, only $300,000 had been raised for the United Black Appeal. So that's not even one one hundredth of 1% of what was asked for. So the most common responses of churches were either to reject the document and its demands outright, or when having a more positive response to recognize positively the injustices that the document was naming, um, historical and present, but instead make, rather than donating to the fund to make pledges either within existing church mechanisms and fund structures, or to increase those funds, right? To add a new fund. So that's the, you know, when you think about what church, how churches and synagogues respond, I, I said it was $300,000, $200,000 of those dollars were given from by the Episcopal church. And it was given through via the National Committee of Black Churchmen in order to avoid, you know, a concern that they were supporting um, a militant group, right? Saying we are not, um, we're, we don't support um, anything that's anti-government, but we do want to support. And so we're going to channel it through um, the National Committee of Black Churchmen. Also important to note is that very committee, um, the NCBC, supported the manifesto without qualifications, without caveats. And they told white Christian groups not to give them money. They said, don't give us the money, give it to the the United Black Appeal. There was one thing I read in a book that said in a decade, the 1960s, in a decade of monumental happenings, that it was actually the issuing of the Black Manifesto that had the biggest concrete impact on race relations and concrete efforts to address um, racism and racial injustices. But it wasn't because it wasn't because the fund was actually itself a success, but rather it put such a, an intense spotlight that it motivated additional um, 
attention, funding, programming, but for the almost, almost without qualification from within existing church structures, rather than actually responding to the real point of the manifesto, which was to say, relinquish control. Right? We don't want you to, to um, for white churches, right, to say, we want you to give us this money so we can decide what to do with it rather than, um, you know, continuing to have control over those funds. So there were some people even at the conference when, uh, where Foreman originally presented the manifesto that were resistant to it. It was eventually adopted on a vote, 187 votes in favor and 63 votes opposed at the conference itself. Moving forward from there, a continuation organization was formed, the Black Economic Development Council, to take the manifesto to church groups directly. It wasn't just issued and then like, let's wait and see what happens. The rest of the summer, this is in April, the council approached specific denominations and religious groups with the demands of the manifesto. But in fact, they had not allowed any um, white reporters in the meeting. And so for much of the white church, they heard about the manifesto on May 4th, which was when James Foreman interrupted a worship service of Riverside Church in New York City. A huge, a prominent church. It was um, like a very wealthy, uh, progressive church that had been very involved in the civil rights movement. But he interrupted the service and read the Black Manifesto from the pulpit while the organist is like trying to play loud enough to drown him out and some of the people are leaving. Um, and ultimately he left. And not only did the did representatives approach specific churches, but they made specific monetary demands. How will that 500 million be comprised? And for example, for Riverside as a wealthy church, even going back to Rockefeller, um, as a um, Rockefeller supported church, it was 60% of their annual uh, income that he demanded from that church. I, so this, it, this um, first, the interruption of services, that was another thing people reacted to, saying this is uh, violating our, con our constitutional rights of assembly and worship. Um, basically, after May 4th, every church had heard about the Black Manifesto. So I think when we talk about the manifesto, we have to really sit with kind of what just happened with the assassination of Dr. King. Uh, we have to understand that so many Black people in the midst of the oppression and the uh, systemic sin and injustice that is proliferating in this country, we're still able to have this kind of ethical and moral hope that was connected to Dr. King and his clarion call of militant civil disobedience rooted in nonviolence. And then to have his life violently taken in the manner in which it was, uh, there was this real shift within um, the Black community uh, that was already starting to emerge. Uh, there were already questions around the the effectiveness of Dr. King and his uh, his methodology. Uh, 
Malcolm X was something that was starting to be something that was attracting a large number of um, particularly northern and younger uh, black folks. Uh, you had other groups like SNCC and uh, who were coming with a, a somewhat different approach. And so this methodolo methodology of change was already something that was very much in question. And then the spokesperson for the most explicit manifestation of nonviolent change is violently ripped from you. Um, the manifesto really emerges in that climate and that culture. And I think it's really important for us to understand that like the manifesto really is trying to call the nation, but I'm going to say more specifically the church to really reckon with this history of economic exploitation of black people in this country in a way that hadn't been done yet. And because of that, you know, so many people, I would say, in the last five years are just really learning about something like uh, the desecration of Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like the fact that this happened over 100 years ago and most people, many people are finding out about it within the last five years is the reason why the manifesto was so pathetic and such a distinctive point in time. I mean, we're talking about desecration of the 35 city blocks that would have roughly equated to $25 million in damage today in the most prosperous, flourishing Black community uh, our country has ever really known. And then we're talking about a history of institutions that have become paramount institutions in our country who their wealth and flourishing is rooted in black exploitation. So, uh, for example, in 2005, JT, JP Morgan Chase, the largest bank in the U.S., acknowledged that between 1831 and 1865, two of its predecessor banks accepted approximately 13,000 slaves as collateral for loans, which empowered chattel slavery to expand to unprecedented ways. And then they ended up owning approximately the 1,250 slaves as a result of defaulted loans. And we know that these institutions literally are staple institutions in our economy. And so the Black Manifesto is trying to help us to see, like, this isn't just something that happened to a couple of people in an ancillary way. This is a systemic reality for our country. And if we are ever going to be a country that is truly going to be just, we have to confront and reckon with this history of economic exploitation of Black communities. And I would add to that that the manifesto is specifically directed to the churches and synagogues and calling out the role of the churches specifically within that larger um, system of, of racist exploitation, economic exploitation. I think it's helpful to look at in one letter that I found written by the National Committee of Black Churchmen, um, they described the churches in the US as, quote, the conscious beneficiary of the enforced labor of one of the most inhuman forms of chattel slavery the world has ever known, um, end quote. But they said both, both directly through churches owning slaves and also indirectly through the wealth built from tithes that were gathered through the wealth from slave labor. And then even, 
beyond the concrete economic um, dimension, which is substantial, as, quote, the moral cement of the structure of racism in this nation. Yeah, it is impossible for chattel slavery to evolve in the ways that it does in this country without the theological legitimization of the institution of slavery by religious leaders. Uh, obviously not all, there were always a uh, uh, kind of 11 in the loaf uh, folk, a remnant who were, you know, fighting against this, but there were far too many churches, theologians, uh, academic Christian academic institutions that were complicit with theologically legitimating and providing a rationale for a biblical basis for chattel slavery and ultimately the evolution of this institution as we know it to be today. So Hannah, can you tell us where was the covenant in this conversation? So in, in situating the covenant's response to the Black Manifesto, um, I think it's helpful to get a sense of um, the composition of the denomination in 1969. I know in earlier podcast episodes, um, you've traced the beginning of the denomination um, from within the Swedish mass migration in the 19th century. Um, and in another episode that you looked at the shift from the first generation to the second generation, um, corresponding with the linguistic shift from Swedish to English. Um, so I just want to say that at that time, that, er that shift from first to second generation, um, you know, was described as the Americanization of the church. Um, and it wasn't so much uh, a demographic expansion of the covenant beyond its original ethnic composition, um, but more so it was an identificational shift, a shift from the denomination self-identifying as an immigrant church to being a self-proclaimed American denomination. But it was that elimination of the linguistic barrier that made future expansion beyond Swedish ethnicity possible. And that expansion took place um, over the next few decades after the shift, um, especially in the wake of World War II. And much, um, the vast majority of this growth took place within the burgeoning suburbs. So this suburban growth within the covenant at the same time reinforced the erosion of an overt Swedish ethnic identity and largely limited that growth, uh, numerical growth, to European Americans because of the racist lending and development policies that underlied the creation of segregated suburbs by intention. So in 1969, when we think about the covenant in 1969, it's one generation removed from that generational change. It had been in 1937 that the covenant's name as a denomination had shifted, dropping Swedish as a qualifier. So by 1969, still the vast majority of congregations that are formally affiliated, um, voting congregations, had a membership that was predominantly European descended. We can mention congregations um, 
outlier at this time congregations um, in Livia, Texas, the first Spanish-speaking congregation. Uh, congregations um, like Oakdale or Douglas Park in Chicago. And then, of course, congregations in Alaska. So at the 1969 annual meeting, the same meeting where the church was presented with the Black Manifesto, the first three first-generation Korean con covenant congregations joined the denomination. And so did Community Covenant in Minneapolis, which described itself as a multiracial church. In 1969, the Covenant Ministerium included a single Black pastor, Robert Dawson, who the next year in 1970 would bring his church plant, Grace Covenant Church in Compton, into the denomination. At this time, Oakdale was in the process of hiring uh, Pastor Willie Jemison, who would begin that following January, beginning three decades of, of ministry at Oakdale. At this time, Alaska, three years away from being transferred from world mission to home mission. And so at this time, pastors, Alaskan pastors, both native and non-native, were classified as missionaries. So that's a long way of saying that in 1969, the covenant is still very white. It's not exclusively white. There are critical roots, um, especially in the decade of the 1960s, for example, for Korean, um, African-American and Latino covenant congregations. So the covenant isn't exclusively white, but it's still overwhelmingly white. And I think the covenant's response to the Black Manifesto at this stage in its history gives us an interesting window into the denomination at a time of transition precisely in this regard. And you can see from Milton Engelbretson's archival papers, he says, as soon as he heard about this, he obtained a copy of the document. So I think that's indicative of the fact that all churches are like, okay, when is our when is our turn going to be? Right? And so they were preparing between between the you know early May and when the annual meeting met in June of 1969, they were already moving first to understand the document and plan a response. This isn't the covenant as a, as a whole, but I know um, from documents that within the Central Conference, um, Worth Hodgen, who had only recently been appointed in a new position of director of urban ministry, he, uh, he actually uh, obtained the manifesto and mailed it to every local um, Chicago pastor. And he asked people to consider it sympathetically. And he said if there were interest, he would organize a panel um, to discuss. And there was a panel. He, there must have been interest. I didn't see any evidence of interest, but there must have been because they had a panel. And, and he invited, um, you know, Black evangelical leaders to come share with covenant pastors um, their understanding of the document, why um, it was important, why it should be taken seriously and why it shouldn't be dismissed on the basis of, of rhetoric. And so even in his, his letter to pastors, I mention this because I think it's a really excellent model. Worth Hodgen actually said, you know, when, when I first heard this document, my initial reaction was to reject it. But then I started listening to others, um, you know, who are 
both responsible and angry, you know, and, and now um, I, I understand the need for this document. And so he encouraged other covenant pastors to do the same. Following the annual meeting, the Covenant Companion actually published, printed the Black Manifesto in the magazine, accompanied by some commentary, not only by Milton Engebretson, but also uh, three other Covenanters, one of whom was Worth Hodgen. And in that context, Worth Hodgen gives the strongest, um, we could say, case for reparations you know, writing to, to Covenant Companion readers about how reparations are theologically and historically reasonable, which I think is really interesting because he admits, um, you know, in public correspondence that he didn't think so originally, but then he, he modeled a kind of um, change, kind of conversion, um, and became a strong advocate um, within the pages of the Companion. So that was to say that there was certainly some preparation behind the scenes leading up to the June annual meeting, which was the 84th annual meeting of the covenant. So the covenant's only 84 years old at this point. When it comes time to the annual meeting, the executive board came prepared. <laughs> they made, a, first they announced to delegates that they might receive a representative um, from the Black Economic Development Council and that if that were the case, they would yield the floor to the representative and listen. But prior to Herbert Herman Holmes arriving, who was the representative, the executive board presented for adoption, for vote, a resolution to the annual meeting. And it was a commitment to raise $1 per member, which at this time there were 67,000 members in the Covenant Church for either, so $1 per year over the next five years or until a total of $335,000 was raised. And that that money would be directed to economic relief for African-Americans. So they called it um, the Relief Funds for Black America. So there was a lot of discussion around this um, this resolution. A number of amendments were presented and discussed. In fact, the discussion exceeded the bounds of that session and had to be a, picked up the very next day, like they waited a whole another day. But ultimately, the resolution was adopted with an amendment that the fund wouldn't be overseen by the Committee on Covenant World Relief which was the original proposal of the executive board, but instead that it would be overseen by a committee of black covenanters. So that was one of the amendments raised from the floor. And I think this is significant because it's really the only point in what the covenant, how the covenant responded that is somewhat consonant with the philosophy of the manifesto, which insisted on black agency. It's also significant as we think about this point in time in covenant history, because really it's the only point in time up until now where this kind of committee could be assembled, and it was. Right? So we can we can look more broadly at the, the transformation of the covenant over the 1960s, but we can look at 1969 as a kind of turning point within covenant demographics. So 
how did they respond? They adopted this resolution to commit to a fund of raising of each covenanter contributing $1 every year, and that these funds would be um, distributed as decided by a committee of Black covenanters. So that was adopted, but as is often the case, intention and follow-through are not always identical. The response to the fund was pretty consistently disappointing, and it really shows the gap between intention and action. If we ingest for inflation every year, it took the covenant until 1980, i.e. 12 years, to reach its original pledge of $335,000. And it's helpful to put that number in contrast to the World Relief Offering which was able to raise the same amount of money in only three years, right? So it's not that the money couldn't have, couldn't have been raised, right? But there was an absence of collective will. So that's the monetary side. I think maybe even more significant is that the fund itself was really quickly generalized, right? So it remained focused on Black Americans for only two years, And after that time, it was broadened along with the Oversight Committee, and it was at that point renamed the Committee for Disadvantaged Americans of Minority Groups. That was the name of the fund at the time. And then that that broadened even further over time. In 1983, it was renamed um, to the HELP Fund, HELP as an acronym, Hands Extended Lifting People. And by that point and moving forward into the 90s, The fund continued, um, but the origins to the fund as a response to the Black Manifesto were either obscured or in many cases virtually unknown. You know, it's really, it's kind of risky to lean too hard into the revolutionary language of the manifesto. I mean, Dominique's been helpful in giving a larger context to to make contextual sense of that. it's critical for understanding how it was heard. And to give one example, a headline in Christianity Today, a Christianity Today article on the manifesto, the headline is Black Manifesto Declares War on Churches. And so this is interesting because it's actually quoting directly from the manifesto. The manifesto itself says to win our demands, we will have to declare war on the white Christian churches and synagogues. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't exaggerating what was actually said, but it was choosing which part of the manifesto to actually foreground. It was focusing on that rhetoric and the harm that might be done to white churches rather than the harm done to black Americans and black communities, um, right, that is occasioning that rhetoric. And so in that regard, I I have found in reading the correspondence and official communications from President Milton Engelbretson, who is the president at that time, um, I've been very impressed with the way he led the church in not focusing on the rhetoric. There There were letters responding to people who were concerned, where he's saying, you know, this isn't 
this isn't reparations. This isn't, a, we're not giving this to the Black Manifesto. But he urged the church not to focus on the rhetoric and instead to focus on the sins of the church, the church's complicity in racism, and focus instead on ameliorating those injustices and repenting from the sin as a church. So I would say that while I agree that Christianity today didn't distort the word choice, they were definitely inflammatory in their framing of the manifesto. And I think that that's helpful for us to one, affirm the fact that the covenant didn't respond in a fear-based knee-jerk way that they easily could have done. And we can also see how that same kind of framing was problematic for evangelical white, white majority culture, evangelical institutions then, and it's still just as problematic today. There's something in the water that we have not tended to that has allowed this same type of problematic framing of the lament that comes from systemic injustice and oppression to allow the suppression of that lament and the request that comes from the com harmed community to be brushed away to the side because it isn't framed in a palatable way. It isn't worded in a way that feels consistent with the conversations that we are willing to engage in. And I think it's a it's a it's a hard word for us to sit with in the fact that I think we have to really reckon with the fact that when you have lived in a country that has had that type of horror and terrorism and systemic sin as a normative expression attacking your body and your community, you're not going to come to the table all the time in the most centered, loving language. And the church's inability to stay at the table and have the difficult conversation when the folks who are bringing the concerns aren't doing it in a way that they would prefer actually is something that we really need to sit with. Um, it's something we needed to sit with in 69 and up in 71. It's something we need to sit with today. Um, and so while I applaud the covenant's response in not giving into the knee jerk and dismissing the manifesto to actually being responsible to investigating it, calling folks to, to read it and to, to convene a committee around it and to actually commit to giving, um, we see it fall into some of the pitfalls that were predictable. So the reason why the manifesto was so insistent on the fact that the funds be given to the, the designated space uh, for stewardship 
is so that we wouldn't see the kind of expansion of what those resources were dedicated to that we saw happen in the covenant. Like this was predictable. And there was a very specific reason why it was outlined in the way that it was in the manifesto to prevent that. And so um, it was also predictable to say like, hey, there's a conviction around what you're saying, but because we can't trust you because of some of your inflammatory language, we're going to set up our own committee of Black folks who are going to be the ones who oversee this and tell us how we should actually apply it. And so I think in those ways, uh, we have to both affirm and critique the response. And for me, really be sober about how we see that those same kind of tendencies at play today um, because we're we're very much um, in a very similar situation uh, have been in the last five to ten years where there have been demands made of the church there have been uh, the interrupting of services uh, there has been kind of this voice from the outside saying hey do you see this pain this oppression this injustice do you see the way it's decimating our communities? Do you see the way in which your theology is making you complicit with things that are anti-gospel? Do you see and are you willing to shift your posture? Um, and I think that those, those, those statements, those, those, to use the language of Dr. King, the dramatizing of injustice, that has happened um, in a lot of these places and spaces is then reframed and rearticulated from a fear-based space in many of our evangelical majority culture institutions, the same way Christianity Today chose to, and therefore legitimates a lot of folks in saying, we don't have to really sit with this. We don't really have to reckon with this. We can do, and if we do so, we can do so on our own terms. And I think that um, part of what's so important in covenant history about the manifesto is that it gives us an opportunity to say, how much have we grown in our ability to have conversations with folks who are not having the conversations on our terms, but are naming things that we really need to sit with and reckon with if we're really going to be ambassadors of reconciliation, repairers of the breach sit with the fact that we and our theological articulations and ministry sometimes have been complicit with things that are not advancing the kingdom. Um, and we have to actually lament and repent of those things. What does lament and repentance look like today that it didn't look like back in the time of the manifesto? Like that's a really concrete question that I think in this moment in time, it would really uh, behoove us uh, to continue to ask ourselves. And I think there has been progress, but I also think that there are ways in which we are prone to respond in the same ways that our foreparents did. So if we, if we take what the covenant was presented with in the Black Manifesto and imagine it today, they committed to $335,000. That would be the equivalent of the 2020 annual meeting committing to raise to raising $2.6 million. 
And at the time, it was 20% of the annual budget that they approved later in that meeting. And so to make that adjustment as well um, for our budget today for growth in numbers, that would be like us committing to raise $5.3 million over the next three years to give to Black Lives Matter. I think there's sometimes the assumption, you know, that we are, um, you know, the, the, the past is more benighted than we are in some ways. And maybe in some ways that's true, but I don't know. What do you all think? I don't see that happening. Yeah, but I, I appreciate your parallel. Uh, one, no, I don't see that happening, but I, I appreciate that parallel because I think, you know, BLM is a, a, a very comparable kind of clarion call. Uh, it wasn't framed in this manifesto was not framed in the language that covenanters would have chosen. It was not something that came to them and set well and was something that they could just have, you know, these open meetings in their congregation without bristling feathers. But yet in steel, they were able to get beyond some of the unpolished nature, some of even the offensive language choices to say, how do we get down to the heart of what this manifesto is trying to convey? And at the heart of it is trying to help us to see the role the sin has played in decimating Black life and communities. And it's trying to help us to see that we are not absolved from that, that we are actually connected to this legacy and as people who are supposed to be known by their love for one another in, the, in a broken world, we have not lived into that calling. And so because we can acknowledge that is true, confession, lament, and repentance are the only proper responses. When we talk about BLM today, we as a denomination have not gotten to a point where we can get past the rhetoric down to what's actually being called upon, what's actually being named, which is this horrid history of anti-Black violence and the church's complicity with it, to a point where we can say what's really required of us when we realize that we have been complicit with anti-gospel forces and reality in the world is confession, lament, and repentance. And so I applaud the response and I'm eager for us to catch up to where our foreparents were in that regard, while still soberly seeing even the response of our foreparents still miss the market in ways. And this is the growth of really moving from milk to solid food uh, and really understanding that as our new life in Christ is born witness to in the world in a way that demonstrates to people that we do follow Jesus by our distinctive response. Um, there are so many ways in which we are distinctive in our response and have been distinctive in our response around these conversations around multi-ethnicity. Um, but the BLM conversation, which, you know, is something that we have to really reckon with the inflammatory ways in which things have been framed and shaped and every expression that resists the kind of powers and the principalities that have kind of been at play in these anti-Black realities are not BLM. 
So like there's this way in which we have to be able to be more discerning in what does it mean to advocate for black life versus to say that every expression to try to thwart the forces that are bringing death into black communities are all BLM. And therefore, since we don't agree with every single facet of the movement, we can dis- we can throw out the baby with the bathwater and just say, like, we don't have to be uh, concerned with that. And even if folks aren't, you know, aren't on, like, I don't think that the support of this manifesto meant that the covenant was on board with <laughs> the language and the intentions and the ethos of this, the manifesto's language. But somehow between then and now, we have lost the ability to be able to say, like, to support what we know is right doesn't mean that we have to support this entity in and of itself. It means that we have to live faithful to our gospel convictions, which means when we realize that we are complicit with sin or actually actively involved in sin, we have to confess, lament, and repent. And I think for exactly that reason, while the action may seem modest to us now. You know, it was actually very courageous at the time and one that required some strength of leadership. But do I think they, um, you know, actually responded to the philosophy of the manifesto? No, not in any way. And they were very clear about that, saying we reject, um, well, at least um, Milton Engelbretson and the publications around it saying, um, you know, we don't support reparations. And so, Um, Taking this from Jennifer Harvey, her book, Dear White Christians, which I recommend to anyone, um, you know, where she outlines the difference between a reconciliation paradigm and a reparations paradigm. And certainly the covenant rejected a reparations paradigm, you know, where they framed the fund as a response to poverty generically, rather than actually naming the specific history that led to these economic inequities and certainly not taking any responsibility as being, you know, a causal factor within those inequities. And so in that way, I think, um, you know, a few times, Dominique, you've said lament and repentance. I'm sure you have a robust uh, definition of repentance that includes action. Uh, But I think what's something that's striking about the manifesto and the covenant's response is, um, and is relevant for us today is, you know, they're not asking for any kind of feelings. They're asking for actions and they're asking for repair and which implies an, a claiming of responsibility. And so I think in that way, when we think about the covenant's response um, to the Black Manifesto, I mean, they didn't, they indirectly responded to the Black Manifesto. And I think it's interesting that most churches that raised funds in response to the Black Manifesto, most churches, denominations with um, European origins, had within them Black caucuses that were, were influential in serving as a voice guiding the larger denominational attitudes. Um, you know, Dominique mentioned Doug Cedarleaf. I think it's important to see the, the influence that a minority of pastors had on the denomination as a whole and to recognize that they were able to have that influence because they had some voice, however marginal they were. Um, And so, 
yeah, I think there's, there is a lot to critique with the covenant's response. And I think it, it, it's a window into so that some of the dynamics um, for the denomination at that time and the composition of the denomination at that time. What I say is in this work, there's a lot of need for translation. And when you hear folks who are speaking out of their pain, their trauma, and are lamenting, they might not frame everything for us in the way that is going to mobilize our congregations or our body politic. But that's our work. As ministers, we're supposed to be able to hear what's underneath the brokenness, what's underneath the trauma and the pain, and to do the work of translation for our people so that they can actually attach the words to the truth of the gospel. And so I would say, if there was anything that we haven't done well enough then and now, it's that translation work. How do we have the ears to hear the eyes to see and a heart to respond to the brokenness that people are bearing witness to. And how do we reframe things for folks in a way to say that this isn't just about being relevant to a secular issue. This is about us bearing witness to who and whose we are and what the gospel commissions us to be about as the people of God in the midst of these broken realities that we continue to encounter. And when we do that kind of work, then I think we are able to really start to live into John the Baptist's vision of repentance, which is my favorite, where he says that there should be fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, it is becomes this lifestyle of responding to Christ, to constantly discerning what faithfulness looks like in our day and time, given the broken realities that we continue to encounter. And, and that's why I think that the manifesto to BLM is such a revelatory connection for us as a denomination to say, how are we learning to do that work of translation, contextualization, and faithfully responding to Jesus better today than we were able to do in 69 and 71? Um, and how will hopefully our children and children's children be able to do it in 40 years than we were able to do uh, in this era of BLM um, and this constant conversation about do Black lives matter in a country that initially says the Black lives were not people, but they were property. And we've seen the evolution of this conversation go all around and about and back centered before us again. Um, how does the gospel change how we respond as people whose guiding question is, where is it written and how goes our walk? These are distinctives about us as the covenant and those distinctives should produce a distinctive response and engagement with these conversations that continue to confound so much of the rest of the world. I feel like I want to hear what else the covenant did. Like we said what we tried to do well, and then you're naming where, like, it's easy to point to Christianity today and go like, okay, they um, blew it up. They, they clung to their power and they blew it up. But like, where, like, where else was the covenant in this journey? Like, as you said, Hannah, like we watered down the fund and we didn't really follow through, but 
did we do things in our publications that were kind of like what, like, did we, were we inflammatory? Like, do we need to name failures of the covenant in this conversation? I mean, I will say that at least for me, one other thing that I think is both applaudable and lamentable about what's going on with the covenant right now in that time is the covenant is also trying to figure out what how it's going to respond to the realities of white flight uh, with the language shifts that's going on, all these different things. And so I think in the midst of the conversation being so new for a Swedish origin and predominantly speaking denomination, it's applaudable that the covenant chose to engage to the degree that it did because it could have opted out. Um, at the same time, though, uh, we have to be sober about the fact that the covenant was also complicit with some of the things that the manifesto was raising in a more modern sense around these conversations about fleeing the city and leaving the black community uh, alone to defend for itself. Um, there, uh, there is this, you know, long story of a reality of church folks choosing to, to go to suburbia and, you know, abandon the cities. And I, I know her, uh, uh, Reverend Efren Smith uh, preached about this a couple of years ago at midwinter in a very prophetic way. Um, but there's also, you know, the counterexamples of, you know, the ministers like Doug Cedarleaf, who I think provides a, a prophetic example of a different type of engagement and leadership. So I think I, I want to recognize the multiple responses, but I also want to say, like, this was a very perilous time in covenant discernment too around this broader conversation of race and are we really going to remain the Swedish denomination or are we going to evolve into what we have ultimately become this kind of multi-ethnic denomination and this was a very pivotal moment where we started to see kind of some of how the covenant was going to try to make sense of uh, what it was presented with. When we ask questions like, what did the covenant do about X, uh, Y, or Z? We can use the term the covenant to actually mean many different things. Um, sometimes we say the covenant meaning annual meeting actions or um, central offices or officers of the denomination. Sometimes uh, we use the term to refer to individual congregations. Um, or maybe even aggregated actions of individual covenanters. And so asking a question about, um, you know, asking for broader generalizations um, regarding action historically, what was representative, the answer might be different, both um, when we consider one of those levels or another. And we also probably have a range of answers even within a given level. In the quarter century leading up to the 1969 annual meeting where the covenant did respond to the Black Manifesto, 20 of those 25 annual meetings had issued resolutions directly addressing race and racism in the world and in the United States. The first resolution in this category um, was presented in 1946, and in that context um, was prompted by the Holocaust. But very soon after, the anti-Semitism enabling the Holocaust was 
explicitly connected to anti-Black racism in the United States. So over the years, again, um, 20 out of the 25 years between that initial resolution in 1969 and continuing beyond, um, annual meeting resolutions, for example, express repentance for the church's complicity in the sin of racism. Resolutions um, express and pledge uh, support for the integration of neighborhoods, schools, congregations. They express the denomination's support for Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery bus boycotts and support for the passage of the Civil Rights Act. Actually, in fact, that annual meeting um, sent a, also resolved to send a letter um, to representatives to be entered into the congressional record reflecting the denomination's support. Um, so as is the case today, it's always the case that resolutions express collective ideals. So it's not inconsequential that the covenant expressed these ideals, right? It, it matters that the covenant expressed support, for example, for Dr. King and nonviolent direct action rather than criticisms, right? Or saying, wait, right? the responses that um, from white clergymen that elicited the letter from Birmingham jail. Right? But at the same time, um, you know, no, no denomination level resolution signifies total consensus. And certainly they don't entail corresponding action, um, at least not in any necessary way. So, so we need to ask um, to what extent resolutions were followed by action. Um, and again, it's true to, as is true today, it was true in the past that there's no single answer. Um, so a few comments. Um, to that question. First, um, most resolutions were brought to annual meetings by the Christian Citizenship Commission. The predecessor, that's the predecessor of um, what we today know as the Christian Action Commission. So that commission, the Citizenship Commission, you know, didn't only present resolutions at annual meetings, but in preparation for those meetings, um, they actively created and curated um, materials, educational materials for local covenant congregations. And correspondingly, um, corresponding to the denominational commission, individual congregations had their own citizenship commissions that were responsible for taking the materials um, created by the denominational commission and using them to form particular congregations um, and to lead actions within particular communities. So regarding then the extent to which um, these educational materials um, resulted in shifted behaviors, um, I wanna to highlight a study by Romelia Williams um, published in the Covenant Quarterly where she surveys the Covenant's response to the civil rights movement 
Um, and, and in that offers a number of different congregational case studies. Um, and also to your question, Kathy, uh, she looks specifically at covenant uh, publications and the covenant companion um, between the years 1963 and 1968. Also, um, more as a primary source, I wanna point to a 1964 study also published in the quarterly at that time, that was written by the director of Home Mission, Joseph Danielson. And in it, he sought to offer a comprehensive survey of what, how, um, how particular covenant congregations located historically within urban settings had responded to shifting national demographics. And he surveys that between the years 1930 and the publication in 1964. And it was, this was commissioned actually in response to a charge that was brought um, that the covenant was abandoning the cities. So the aggregate reality is that side by side, with a con pretty consistent, um, very consistent record of denominational resolutions confessing um, racism as a sin within the white church and committing to specific countermeasures. We find covenant families leaving urban communities, followed by um, know, the exodus of covenant congregations. So we can and we should look at a case like Oakdale Covenant Church that stayed in its neighborhood, that consciously um, integrated, and ultimately, through the leadership of Willie Jemison, became a strong Black church. We can and we should look at a case like Doug Cedarleaf, um, whom Dominique mentioned, uh, who in the same period led North Park Covenant Church in advocacy um, within the neighborhood, within its community, to encourage and facilitate the integration of the neighborhood um, and its schools. So these, these cases, just as two cases, um, and we could look at some others, they offer his, important historical precedents um, for us to, to learn from, um, to celebrate, to emulate. But unfortunately, they're outliers. So even as we rightly um, consider them you know, in our recounting of our story, our historiography, um, they have to be placed against a much larger backdrop of urban congregations shrinking and therefore either closing entirely or um, merging with other shrinking congregations or moving farther and farther from city centers. And so in that way, contributing to the very economic 
disinvestment that the Black Manifesto names and lays at the feet of white churches, as Dominique says. Both of you have really dropped some really valuable words on how can, how can the covenant lean in today? Are there any other invitations that you're sensing God for the covenant church uh, uh, around the work and conversation of racial reconciliation and righteousness? We've talked quite a bit about the difference between rhetoric and substance and the need not to lose sight of the real substance of things. Um, to actually see the unjust realities that need to be named and addressed. I think another warning that this history offers concerns a distinction between intention and execution, between words and action. And in that regard, I think um, you know it's it's sobering to look at the covenant's larger record of uh, consistent statements, decades of statements, rejecting racial injustice side by side with its actions um, and inactions on many levels. So it's, it's one thing to issue a statement, and it's quite another to make material impacts um, in local communities and in particular households. So I think a question that it raises uh, for us today is you know, how does this translate to our own concrete choices today as individuals, as uh, families, as congregations? What does it demand of our own concrete actions, recognizing their associated costs? To what extent do our actions match our words um, our resolutions or other statements. Um, I, gu I guess in, in a sense, this is actually just the mirror image of the caution not to get cut up, caught up in rhetoric. Um, just as much as we shouldn't be distracted by inflammatory rhetoric, we also need to be, to, to avoid being lulled by positive rhetoric or rhetoric um, that, that we like. Because in, intentions, um, you know, resolutions are an important starting point, but you know they're, they're not an ending point. They're far from sufficient. So uh, I've been I've been reading a bit about a phenomenon um, described by sociologists called moral credentialing, and at least what they're what they're claiming is that. Um, if a person has a way of declaring themselves, identifying themselves as moral in some category, they're actually more likely to justify to themselves committing an immoral action. So um, I think this, this raises a caution for us. And I'll say, I'll say, um, you know, at least I'll say white Christians. It may go without saying, but you know, it should not be the case that I can put a Black Lives Matter sign in my yard and then not give a second thought to how my own consumer choices perpetuate wealth inequality materially. 
not to give a thought to whether I'm, for example, um, building the wealth of Jeff Bezos or building the wealth of black businesses. So for me, this points um, further, and I guess finally uh, for me, to the economic critique that the manifesto leveled. And I think that we need to sit with that critique uh, today. I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not intending or um, advocating that we swap a racial analysis uh, for economic analysis or put the two um, in opposition, oppose class and race. Not at all. Um, We need to recognize both. But it seems to me imperative that we incorporate a strongly economic critique and consciousness into our conversations around justice generally. Um, I think we need to recognize the intersections of race and class and that we should understand justice most fundamentally as the equitable distribution of resources, opportunities, um, and burdens or costs. And in seeking seeking justice, um, to, to put to ourselves the question that the manifesto poses very starkly, Um, to ask in what ways the disproportionate lack of resources of particular communities with particular histories aren't the result of mystical forces. Um, For example, you know, some force called poverty, um, you know, to which people are just passive um, victims. But, but instead, the results of disproportionate, um, unjust accumulation of my own um, community I, or my own actions. I wouldn't personally go so far as to just reject a market economy. I, it, we need to be more nuanced than that. But I do think we should be far more attentive to the extent to which we, as, um, as Christians, as Christian congregations um, within our context um, in the United States in 2022, uncritically accept larger commitments and values of capitalism. And, um, you know, I could be wrong, I could be proved wrong, but my sense is that that has only grown since 1969. So in summary, I would say I think the Black Manifesto calls us today within um, the church broadly and within the covenant church um, to keep an economic analysis in the conversation. And I think it calls us to be accountable to moving beyond words to actions. And I'd say to kind of piggyback on that, a couple of tangible things. Um, When I am in a congregation or a context where I see that uh, fear mongering is at play and the framing of the lament of Black people, 
is being weaponized in a way to disincentivize people from participating. What do I do? Like, as a listener, am I somebody who's going to do this work of contextualization and reframing and translation? Or am I, am I somebody who rides the wave and say, yeah, we, we shouldn't be listening to these people. All they are are disruptive folks who are threatening the safety and security of our neighborhoods and our communities. Like, what is my role when I see that at play in my congregation, at a dinner table I'm at, in an everyday communal gathering that I attend? Um, do I even have the eyes to see, the ears to hear, and the heart to respond? Um, the second tangible thing I really would say is um, there is this uh, movement going on right now in a lot of religious spaces about understanding our connection to the to the land we occupy. And this conversation becomes important when it comes to questions around white flight or uh, displacement of our indigenous sisters and brothers or even black communities that have historically been places but have been uh, forced off their land because of racial violence and the horrid legacy of domestic terrorism. Uh, there's a great documentary called Banished uh, that looks at this particularly for uh, African Americans, uh, for folks who are interested in it. But I think these kind of questions will help us to confront our history in a way that should produce confession, lament, and repentance. I think when we realize that we're in a congregation that used to be in the city, that abandoned city as part of white flight, that should start to orient what it means for us to inhabit this new space that we're in. And how does that inform the missional outreach and the way in which we are contextualizing the good news of the gospel for the community that we are now in? Um, do we Are we willing to name the sins that caused us to flee the city to this new space? Um, are we, are, you know, we look at our camps, we look at all of our different institutions. Were any of those in places where uh, people of color were prohibited from living and purchasing and owning? And if that is part of the legacy, how do we confess that our complicity in participating in a market that excluded a lot of competition uh, based off people's pigmentation and ethnic background. Um, these are things that are very tangible things that I think that we could be doing in our places and spaces that will bear witness to the fact that we belong to Jesus because we're engaging in the conversation distinctively, again, because of who and whose we are. So I think in these moments, those are some of the things that I would invite us to as we try to embody racial righteousness and uh, take our rhetoric into tangible action to produce fruit in our communities for the kingdom. Thank you, friends, for joining us for the Love the Cove podcast. We'll be posting new episodes every other week. If you're interested in sharing your story on when you felt like you were covenant, send us an email at lovethecove at covechurch.org. Bye.